For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Lord Sumption. Lord Sumption is a celebrated historian, barrister, and former judge of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. After being an Oxford University historian, he pursued an extraordinary legal career and in due course was sworn into the Supreme Court. While pursuing his legal career, he also wrote celebrated works of medieval history, most notably four volumes of the projected five-volume history of the Hundred Years' War, which was a period of history that's been enormously influential in advancing freedom, including in Australia, and yet is very little understood. Over the years, he's also weighed into public debates, most recently regarding COVID policy in the United Kingdom, and also the demonisation of Western history, particularly surrounding the Black Lives Matter protests and riots in 2020. His most recent books are Trials of the State, Law and the Decline of Politics, and Law in a Time of Crisis. Lord Sumption, it's very good of you to have us here in your own home in London. I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to begin by saying, in the English-speaking world, we often talk about the, the rule of law, almost in hushed tones sometimes, you know, sort of a sacred doctrine uh, that stands behind freedom and justice. But we rarely hear it defined. So I'd love to hear your explanation of how we should understand the rule of law. And secondly, how common is it? You know, where is its origins? It, it seems to me to be not as common as we might assume it to be. The rule of law is a, uh, has become something of a cliché of political discussion. Uh, it's used about 20 times more often uh, in judicial decisions than it was a generation ago. Um, and you're right that not many people pause to work out what it actually means. I think that it implies three things. First of all, uh, I think that it means that public authorities have no power to coerce us except what the law gives them. Um, secondly, it means that there have got to be uh, a minimum of rights. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what those rights are, but I think that they must at least include um, uh, 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 laws that safeguard you against arbitrary interference with your life, with your freedom uh, and with your property because otherwise you're not a society at all, you're simply a group of people in which the strongest prevails. Thirdly, I would say that the rule of law comprises independent courts to enforce those minimum rights, to enforce the criminal law, um, uh, and uh, to uh, ensure that governments and public authorities remain within their powers. Having said that, I think it's quite important uh, to understand what the rule of law doesn't mean. Uh, the rule of law doesn't mean that every moral or political dilemma and every public issue has to have a legal solution. A lot of people think uh, that that is what it means. It doesn't. The rule of law uh, can include a situation in which the laws are pretty unpleasant, in which rights are minimal beyond the ones that I've outlined. Uh, I wouldn't like to live in a society like that, but I wouldn't say that it lacked the rule of law. An important distinction. I, I get what you're driving at. Um, so if we, um, building on that, come to the issue in our own culture of the separation of powers, because it's been, I think, designed, or what stands behind it is the idea that you don't allow anybody to gain so much influence that they can ride roughshod over the laws and over other, other people. Um, in, the, in the minds of a lot of historians, the, the ideology that preoccupies English thought 
up until the 20th century, perhaps is best not so much thin, thought of in terms of conservatism or liberalism or socialism, but the English constitution. So you've had a lot of ink spilled trying to distill the essence of the English constitution. Um, one aspect of it was famously discussed by the French thinker Montesquieu uh, and before him by Locke, the separation of powers. What do we mean by the separation of powers? And how do we take into account this issue of judicial review that we hear a lot about now, the rise in people looking to the law for all sorts of things that perhaps the law shouldn't do? The separation of powers is clearly important. Montesquieu was wrong to regard it as the foundation of, um, uh, of the English constitution because the executive, the judiciary uh, and um, uh, the legislature in England have always uh, been intermixed to a degree that I think he never really understood. Um, but what it does mean is that although there's a good deal of overlap, um, each of the three major organs of the state uh, is expected to respect uh, the specific functions of the other. Now that's perfectly consistent with judicial review because the proper role of judicial review is to keep government within its powers um, and um, that seems to me to be entirely consistent with the respect for the proper function of government. Judicial review can be carried much too far at the point where it starts interfering with government policies which the courts for one reason or another simply don't like. Um, there's been too much of that uh, in the United Kingdom and too much of it in the United States. They are the two countries who have been the, the biggest uh, performers in this area of the advance of um, judicial power. Um, the United States has got the disease a lot worse than we have partly because of the extreme immobility of the legislative process in Congress, which means that the only dynamic public institution in the United States is the court system, but in particular the Supreme Court. In this country, uh, the courts are retreating from some of the um, more advanced positions which they occupied in um, the last 30 or 40 years. This is a development which I very much welcome, uh, although it has caused much dismay among many other lawyers. I think it marks a reversion to the basic, basic orthodoxy of the British Constitution, which is based on the supremacy of Parliament and on the existence of lines of responsibility which are essentially political rather than legal. Now, I wouldn't favour that kind of system if I lived in a country without the um, strong constitutional traditions of this country. Um, they're not unique, but they are still quite strong. Uh, there are countries where I would not trust political conventions, where I would want to see greater uh, legal intervention, but uh, this isn't one of them. It's a very interesting um thing to explore. We do have the debate in Australia. We don't have a Bill of Rights. So there's often an accusation uh, pointed at what might be called activist judges, that they are trying to de facto build a Bill of Rights. In America, as you've said, uh, you know, there's always tremendous tension around the issue of who goes on to the Supreme Court. Are they people who will be activists, as they're known, um, or will they be people who respect the political process, and there's a couple of major issues coming up there now. Um, and, and no matter what they decide, there'll be a lot of unhappiness, I suspect. Do you think there's a problem of the degrading of the, the, the law in the standing of um, the people's eyes if they become too activist? If they, because they're not elected, you see, and they can't be removed by the people. Well, that has, on the whole, not happened in the United States, where uh, whatever people may think of individual justices, um, there is a considerable body across the political spectrum of respect for the institution of the Supreme Court as such. Um, but I wonder how long uh, that can last. 
The problem about many of the decisions of the US Supreme Court is that it has taken out of the hands of citizens um, uh, decisions on uh, intensely important moral issues in particular, like abortion, um, uh, same-sex um, relationships, and so on. Um, it, I, I personally agree with most of the decisions um, uh, that uh, the critics of the Supreme Court dislike. Uh, I'm in favour of a carefully regulated right of abortion. I have no problem about same-sex relationships or, or marriages. Uh, but I do think uh, that the way in which these things have been introduced into the polity of the United States was a serious mistake. Uh, because I think that the legislative process can have an important influence in reconciling people to radical changes uh, in social values. If it's imposed on them by a judicial body, uh, I don't think that the process is anything like as smooth. It's very striking that uh, abortion is virtually a non-issue in, in Europe. And that is because every country in Europe, pretty well without exception, has adopted a regulated right of abortion. I think Malta is now the only exception. And they've always adopted it by legislation. This country, the United Kingdom, was the very first to do so um, in the 1960s. And I think that the fact that this was the subject of serious debate and of legislative resolution is a major reason why this is no longer an issue, even among those who would like to see abortion more tightly regulated or even outlawed. It's, it's gone away, whereas it is an electric issue in the United States. Uh, increasingly, elections in the United States have become contests for the right to appoint members of the Supreme Court. Uh, that seems to me to be a profoundly unhealthy state of affairs. Here in Britain, I think the great surprise of uh, the decision at a referendum to separate Britain out from Europe again had implications as well for the judiciary and the law in the country. Would you make any comments about how that unfolded? Well, there were two uh, uh, major decisions of the Supreme Court in which the government's, the method which the government had adopted of pulling out of the EU was declared to be unlawful. They were both decisions arising out of uh, uh, applications by Gina Miller, uh, who was a pro, an active pro-European campaigner. Um, I was party to the first of those decisions, uh, which decided that uh, the government could not serve notice on the EU to withdraw uh, without parliamentary authority. Um, I was not party to the second because I had by then retired, um, uh, but I have publicly defended the second decision. So it follows that I support both of them. They both have a common factor which tends to get overlooked. They are both defenders, uh, both de they're both decisions which defended um, the uh, powers of parliament against uh, an overbearing executive. Um, that was particularly true of the second, which uh, declared illegal uh, the government's attempt to prorogue parliament in order to silence it in the build-up to the late stages of the negotiations with the EU. Um, what the government wanted to do uh, was to put Parliament into abeyance for a period of some, a particularly vital period of some five or six weeks. Um, and uh, they were prevented from doing that. And it seems to me that the reason why they were prevented, uh, which is not quite the way that it was expressed by the judgments, but it's the way that I would express it. If the government had been right about this, <coughs> the public power to prorogue Parliament would have been converted into a private privilege of the Prime Minister because it would have been beyond challenge. Um, there would have been no Parliament, so it couldn't be challenged in Parliament. It couldn't be challenged by the public because they have no institutional means of challenging uh, government policy politically uh, other than through Parliament. 
It couldn't have been challenged in the court because if it had won, its right to prorogue Parliament would have been uh, declared lawful. So you would have had a complete void at the heart of government uh, in which the government was, in the most technical sense of the term, completely irresponsible. That is to say, there were no way, was no way in which it could be held responsible for the decisions uh, that it made. It is fundamental to our constitution and part of the reason why we limit the, role, the political role of the court uh, that politicians and government ministers are politically answerable. This would have made them politically answerable to nobody. Uh, so I was in favour, after a certain amount of hesitation at the outset, I was in favour of the decision which the Supreme Court arrived at. I think it's wrong to regard this as an example of judicial activism. When we talk of judicial activism, what we normally mean uh, is an intrusion uh, by the courts uh, into uh, the policy-making functions of the executive. This was an attempt by the courts to prevent ministers from intruding into the proper legislative and political functions of the legislature. And since the legislature and its that complete power is absolutely at the heart of the British Constitution. That was a development of great importance. Understood. Understood. There's a, a traditional view, and it's certainly alive in Australia as well, um, or sentiment to the effect that the more laws a country has, the worse or more vicious its inhabitants must be. Uh, and I think you pointed out the English statute books now fill up about 50 thick volumes. Uh, and say in relation to tax law in Australia, as people have found more and more ways to evade their responsibilities, the tax law in Australia now is just incomprehensibly dense. It's not much better here. And voluminous. I mean, it is just unbelievable. And we seem to be creating uh, new laws at the drop of a hat now at a faster rate. I don't know how anyone in the judiciary ever keeps track of everything that's happening, let alone the citizen in the street. Uh, and you've also talked about the sort of social absolutism that we now see emerging, uh, increasing intolerance of living with risks that we once would have thought normal. What do you think about and what drives this explosion of resort to legal remedy and more and more laws? Or more, not so much legal remedy, but more and more laws? The main oh, reason oh. is the development of democratic institutions since the end of the 19th century certainly in this country and I think in many other countries as well. Um, as political power um, becomes more democratic, um, uh, people develop higher expectations of what political action can do. And law is the instrument by which political action can be imposed on the population at large. Uh, I don't uh, object to all of this. I think that it has gone too far, and in particular, I think that what started as a quest for basic security, uh, and therefore a high degree of regulation of bodies whose decisions can radically affect people's lives, that's, that is how it started. There is an economic argument for and against high degree of regulation, but there's no doubt that that's what the public expects, and therefore in a democracy it's what we must expect. What I think is particularly unfortunate is the tendency of people to use law as a means of imposing their own moral values uh, on others who don't share those values. Uh, there are some things, thou shalt not kill, uh, which can be regarded as universal values. There is a high degree of consensus that they ought to be forbidden and there is no way of forbidding them effectively otherwise than by law. Um, but that does not apply to things like animal rights legislation, um, just to take one random example. Um, uh, there are laws in this country um, against wearing, not against wearing mink, but against uh, uh, farming mink. Uh, there are demands for laws against wearing it. Now, uh, there are also demands for laws California actually had such a law for a short time until it was quashed against eating things like foie gras, which are thought to be cruel. Now, whenever one might think about this, it's a point on which people disagree. Um, uh, in 
many countries, eating foie gras is fine. In this country, it's fine for a, quite a lot of people. Um, they do not feel a moral imperative uh, to uh, suppress the French foie gras industry uh, or uh, to suppress the, the British uh, mink farming industry. Uh, now, that seems to me to be a classic kind of issue on which people are entitled to make their own mind up and to act in accordance with their own moral views. Uh, I find the desire to use law as a tool for imposing conformity uh, extremely dangerous. It can be carried into fields a great deal more significant than animal rights legislation. Um, uh, and I would be dismayed if it ever were. Do you see uh, something, uh, anything of a relationship between this, this moral absolutism and the desire to exercise a lot of control over other people's lives? Do you see any linkage between that and the decline of that once very powerful institution, um, uh, Christianity in this country? Is there any linkage there in your mind? No, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I think that although organized religion of every kind has declined in the West generally, and certainly in this country. Um, uh, I don't think that the moral sentiments which animate Christianity have in fact declined. Um, uh, there are some areas where it, it may have done, particularly in the area of sexual behavior. Um, but on the whole, I think that the basic moral principles which animate not just Christianity, but most other religions, uh, are basically intact in most Western countries and certainly here. Um, foundational to modern law has been Mill's famous harm principle, that the state only has a right to intervene in our actions if they're harmful to others. I'm not quite sure how you define harmful anymore. But he intended the principle to be a freedom-enhancing one. Nowadays, it does seem to be deployed, or at least people seek to deploy it, to increasingly restrict uh, freedoms um, in, in areas like speech and religion because words can be harmful. Um, yes, I mean... Made a shift in how we understand harm? Whether words are harmful uh, is very much dependent on the individual who hears them. Um, and uh, I think that if you have a principle that you can't harm people by words, people will uh, claim to be harmed by all sorts of words which wouldn't have uh, harmed anyone or be thought to harm anyone a generation ago. Um, uh, I think that you've therefore got to have some element of objectivity. Uh, I think the question needs to be uh, whether uh, you would be harming people in the eyes of reasonable people. Uh, I think that nobody is entitled to intellectual safety. Uh, nobody is entitled not to have their most fundamental and cherished views challenged. The traditional line which English law has drawn is between uh, words which simply uh, outrage people and words which would cause a breach of the peace among reasonable people. That seems to me to be a defensible line to draw. The line which many people would like to draw is a line which would prevent you from insulting, offending or hurting people. Uh, I think insulting, offending or hurting people is discourteous, but I do not think that the law has any role here because it seems to me that what is insulting or offensive is too subjective a concept and too variable a concept, variable over time and variable from one person to the next. At a, at a sort of personal level, I have to say, there have been times when things have been said that I've, to me that I've found very hurtful, but when I've sat down and thought about them, I've had to grapple with the fact that there was some legitimacy. In fact, sometimes I think we only advance when we do have hotly contested ideas and when, when people actually have to confront the fact that they might have called it wrong. All knowledge and all opinion is provisional until something more persuasive comes along. And sometimes... If we shut down the persuasive yeah. process, we will stop advancing. This difficult concept we have in Australia, and I think you have it here too, of hate speech. I don't know how you define hate speech anyway. 
but it's led to some fairly uncomfortable propositions, I think, in the public square. But hate speech is not, as yet in this country, uh, a, a legal concept, except in the case of hate speech that provokes a breach of the peace among reasonable people, um, where it's been part of the law for as long as anyone can remember. Um, there is a demand for its suppression by law, and in particular for its suppression uh, by regulating, uh, for example, the social media. Um, and the problem about this is that any attempt uh, to regulate speech short of speech that provokes a breach of the peace ends up uh, by enforcing uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the middle position. Uh, it ends up by in, in, enforcing a high degree of conformity to received opinion. Uh, it seems to me that intellectually, morally, socially, we advance very largely through challenges to received positions. Um, and uh, sometimes these challenges result in the received positions changing. Uh, sometimes they result uh, in people questioning the foundations of their own views and coming up with exactly the same views, but for better thought out reasons. Both of these are extremely beneficial processes. Interestingly, you've pointed out that in the early 1950s, the Conservative Party had nearly three million members, the Labour Party one million. But now the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has more members than both combined. It's the same in Australia, in, mm. in the broad. It's the same in very many countries. There's this civic disengagement uh, from politics at the same time as we demand more and more from our politicians, ironically, when we march on the streets. It's, it's noted all over the developed world. Yes. You say, uh, if I'm quoting you correctly, this disengagement will in the long run likely lead to a far more partisan and authoritarian style of political leadership. I think that is likely to happen simply because if people are not interested in politics, they are essentially leaving the field to professional politicians. They may not like the thought, they may not think of it that way, but that is actually what they're doing. Um, it is very much more difficult to challenge fanatical issue, fanatical single issue pressure groups, for example, uh, or politicians with a bee in their bonnet, or simply politicians with an excessive appetite for power, uh, if our institutions do not have a really high degree of participation. Um, there are lots of reasons why this has happened. In part, it's happened because of a growing disgust with the political process, which I regard as uh, both pernicious and unjustified. Um, and it's partly also, I think, uh, because uh, people have, social habits have changed in a way that have made participation in politics uh, less attractive to people. Um, a major change occurred in the social life of most countries with the arrival of a television in every sitting room. Now, that has meant that people go out less often, they receive their entertainment passively in their own homes. The degree of socialization that occurs is reduced. Um, in the 1950s, when those figures were, that you cited were broadly true, um, there were very large numbers of political clubs, uh, both conservative and labor. Uh, many of them were concerned mainly with things that had nothing to do with politics. They, they ran entertainments of every imaginable kind. They, they were just ordinary social clubs, but for people with similar political views. And they sprang into life when there was a general election. This kind of background was, I think, extremely healthy. We're not going to recover it, but basically political clubs have faded away in this country. They have been taken over by a very small number of people with extremely strong feelings about politics or some aspect of politics who are using them as a vehicle for imposing those views on a much, on a much larger world. Um, and, and, you know, this is, 
a, a, a tendency uh, that will lead to a more despotic kind of government. People who are highly active in politics, people with very strong feelings uh, about political issues, are natural despots. What we need is a large number of uh, members of the public who care about politics enough to participate, uh, but who do not care about politics so much that they want to impose their political views on everyone else. Well, this is, uh, the, I think, might be described as a, the, the loss of ability to find reasonable middle ground and consensus. Social media seems to have turbocharged all of this. It's given a whole set of tools to people who want to behave in a way that suggests that they know best and no one else knows anything. I wonder whether the great, one of the great problems behind this isn't that it's a bit like flogging a tired old horse. We expect more and more from our politicians. We'll support them less. We whip them endlessly, thinking that that's the way to get them to perform better. In reality, what we're doing is ensuring that, uh, if I can put it this way, decent horses are more and more reluctant to line up to have a go at the job. So the whole thing becomes self-fulfilling, the prophecy that, that, that we're not being well served because they're only self-interested or they're limited or they don't have the ability. Well, the social media basically amplify whatever trends of opinion are out there anyway. Uh, I think its importance is therefore often exaggerated. Um, but it is true uh, that we have um, uh, very high, excessively high expectations of politicians and of what the political process can achieve. Uh, we've had them for much longer than there have been social media. And the problem about these is that they, uh, they are bound, in many cases, to be disappointed because there's a great deal that politics can't achieve. Um, and the, the failure of politicians uh, to achieve them is therefore held to discredit the whole political process. And this is the reason why you, in many countries, including this one, if the polls are to be believed, there is an appetite for uh, strong men, for more authoritarian uh, styles of government. Uh, getting things done is, is, is the mantra. Um, there are people who are not going to be sidetracked uh, by tiresome things like legislatures or careful discussion of the issues or compromise with people who take completely different views. Do you think that's driven in part uh, by, I think, another Western problem that's endemic, either a, 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 a very poor understanding of history because it's been taught by revisionists or selectively only, or an almost total absence of an understanding of history and the lessons that it brings to the table? I think that's probably part of it. One of the advantages of history is that it's a great source of vicarious experience. And one of the things that it teaches you is that human beings are nothing like as good as they think they are at changing the world around them. Um, the world has a capacity for resistance that people tend to underestimate. Um, uh, the last prime minister of this country who really knew much history was Harold Macmillan. Uh, and uh, some prime ministers have been woefully lacking in historical knowledge or basic culture. Um, one prime minister, uh, who I won't name, uh, visited the National Gallery for some public reception and said basically as he arrived to the director, nice place you've got here, I never realized it existed. Um, this is, uh, I mean, I think a lack of the vicarious experience that history gives you is one of the many causes of uh, our present malaise. Uh, the problem is uh, that we all need, uh, we all live in ivory towers. It's not just you, it's not just me. Uh, it, this is a, an accusation commonly leveled against anybody who might be called a toff. But actually, it's true of everybody. We are all, to some extent, imprisoned in our own social world. We depend, for most of our experience, on vicarious experience, the experience of others. History is the largest fund of vicarious experience available to us. 
Some understanding of it seems to me, therefore, to be vital in any well-governed country. Amen. Your most recent book uh, is called Law in a Time of Crisis. I didn't choose the title. Uh, well, can we explore, anyway, something that seems to be very important here. We hear more and more of the language of crisis. Mm. Um, we hear it's an emergency, it's a crisis, it's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. I hear that all the time in relation to the climate in Australia, mm. when there's a flood or a fire. And it is usually uttered by a young news reporter, and when you actually have a look at the records, you'll find... It's not unprecedented, but the word is bandied around and it's all aimed at the language of emergency, sort of, it, it seems to, to, to sort of try and drive law and policy without much debate. You know, it's sort of almost emotional and highly intense rather than let's sit back and talk calmly. Yes, well, I think that's a serious issue that you've raised. Um, I mean... And climate change is obviously one area where it's particularly evident. Uh, my uh, problem about Greta Thunberg is that because of her age and her personal courage and her sweetness, what she is actually trying to do uh, is to persuade people to respond emotionally to what is essentially a technical, it's a very important technical issue, but it is a technical issue. Uh, emotion gets in the way, it just doesn't help on that kind of thing. I believe that climate change is a very serious problem. Uh, I think that it, it exists, I think that it is largely human made. Uh, so I accept the basic um, scientific case which is made uh, for its being uh, a, a potentially, not yet, but potentially terminal um, problem. Um, it just doesn't help uh, to talk of this uh, in the kind of terms that Greta Thunberg does or that uh, many climate activists do. Uh, my own feeling about it is, I mean, the problem about climate change is that it's one of those issues like uh, 10 people sitting in a restaurant, the bill is going to be divided by 10, so you might as well order lobster. Um, it's, uh, individual action is wholly ineffective, and collective action is not going to happen until people feel sufficiently and immediately threatened. So I think that this is beginning to happen now. Attitudes are changing. Uh, I don't accept uh, the case that there is a tipping point beyond which everything is irreversible. I think that kind of language is not sensible. Uh, it seems to me that the, uh, the longer we leave it, the more disruptive, the more expensive, uh, and the more despotic will be the eventual solutions. But I think that there will be an eventual solution if we leave it too long, the human cost of the solution will be catastrophic. That's why I'm in favour of early action. Uh, but I think that uh, this isn't the language of tipping points. Uh, this is a, a question of degree. Yeah, I, I agree with you strongly. I think I see two problems. One is that the excessive emotionalism is in, of its, in uh, and of itself sapping young people's sense of hope and of challenge mm. so that they become despondent. We know this. Children everywhere have climate change anxiety. Uh, yeah. Young people are having, there's been three or four reports in Australia of young men having vasectomies because they don't want to bring children into yes. this world. In reality, we want them to see these things as challenges to be thought through and tackled methodically. The other problem is that so often that emotionalism leads people to advocate for solutions that are non-solutions. and I'm, the thing that really worries me about this, if I can say it about some European countries, for example, I get the strong impression that while they're very condemnatory of Australia um, uh, on, on climate, for example, what a lot of European countries, consumers are doing is they're not really dropping their consumption at all. It's being outsourced. So, yeah. all right, we don't make our motor car here. But we bring it in from some other country. So we look good. But it's not actually having a net global effect. My point is, yeah. there's too much feeling, not enough clear thinking. Yes, I mean, you know, there's a there's a great deal in that. Um, 
but it raises the point that uh, this is actually a, a global problem and there won't be any solution if it isn't a global solution. And that, I think, carries huge implications for our future. I am, for the reasons that we've been discussing, a strong believer in democracy. But I think that one of the biggest challenges that democracy faces is the need to grapple with the problem of climate change because democracy is essentially national. You need to have a a, a, a unit, the nation, which collectively feels a common instinctive loyalty to a group of institutions. Uh, there is no current example uh, of people having that kind of respect for international institutions. Um, they do think in national terms. There is no such thing as an international democracy or an international parliament. Now, when faced with a an issue that can only be resolved at international level. I think there is a serious danger that this is going to end up uh, by being a world in which decisions are made by agreement between governments without reference uh, to um, uh, elected bodies. I regard that as the main challenge to our democratic future. Um, if uh, internationally there was uh, a much stronger uh, feeling that we needed to tackle the issue, uh, I think that the issue would become less significant. But it won't go away because there are some countries uh, who do not uh, accept the basic case because it's not in their interest to do it. Um, the United States under Trump uh, was one example, but a much simpler example would be dis disafforestation. Countries like Brazil and Malaysia um, depend economically to a relatively high degree on uh, the exploitation of forests, which has a worldwide impact um, uh, on uh, the climate. Now, um, uh, ultimately, it, it seems to me that far from being a unifying factor, Climate change is likely to expose serious divisions um, between countries and between societies, which are not going to be overrun without some kind of um, global pressure, which, depending on the methods employed, could fairly be described as despotism. Now, we really are in a position of uh, having a collision between an irresistible force and an immovable object. And I don't know what the solution is going to be. Lord Sumption, on this issue that you rightly point to, the need to build consensus and to think clearly about the challenges coming at us uh, with something as enormous as climate change. The other issue that really occurs to me, and I see a lot in our country, is internal division. And... Uh, one of our guests, Joel Kotkin, talked about the way in which you have a sort of alliance now between business leaders. In these days, often they're tech millionaire, billionaires and they, uh, they don't dress formally and they don't speak in the language of business leaders of old, aligning with the green movement, uh, concerned about climate change, often in the context of governments that are pretty confused about how to handle this, and then ordinary people whose jobs might depend on, in my country, for example, coal mining or whatever, think, well, this is all very well. My job's on the chopping block, but they're living an extraordinary lifestyle, and I'll bet they're not going to give it up. And indeed, in the context of the political debate in Australia, there are a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money out of renewable energy who often will say very provocative things in the public arena without owning up. They've got a personal financial interest in it. So what I'm driving at is this, this sort of division that we're getting where there's a bit of a feeling that the elites are being dismissive of a potential impact on everybody else's jobs and income, and it makes it harder to progress. These, these sort of divisions, are it's hard for me to see how they're going to be overcome. This arises out of the basic dilemma posed by just about every suggestion as to how one might deal with the problem of climate change. Um, 
it is difficult to envisage any solution that doesn't involve a reduction of consumption. And reduction of consumption is always going to be unpopular with consumers. Um, the richer you are, um, the, more, um, disc the more discretionary uh, your choices of expenditure are. And so it's not surprising to see uh, very rich businessmen who've made their pile um, supporting reductions of consumption that affect people whose existence is marginal much more powerfully than it affects them. But I think one must uh, avoid um, uh, treating, quest the, treating questions that naturally arise about people's motives into a reason for dismissing uh, the issue or the solutions. Um, any solution is going to provoke a large number of losers and some winners. Um, but frankly, we've got to work out whether uh, the proposed solution has some prospect of improving the lot of humanity generally. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is easy. But the problem that you've pointed out is absolutely fundamental to the whole issue. Um, it is, after all, looking at it internationally. The reason why Malaysia does not wish to give up logging uh, in order to assist rich industrial countries who have exhausted their own forests years ago uh, in dealing with the consequences which they have been largely instrumental in creating. I can't help thinking of the way in which the early days in our own colony in, in New South Wales, starvation was a real threat. Uh, the initial governor of Australia, Governor Phillip, who was quite a remarkable man, put himself on the same starvation rations as the convicts. And I think one of the things that will be needed if we're to progress this is a genuine demonstration by those who have power and wealth and and the, the, the staggering concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. And very often they're people who, who, who want to rewrite the rule books around climate change in a way that disadvantages everybody except themselves. Part of the solution will be people pointing to their own willingness to make sacrifices, I think. I think there will be a powerful increase in egalitarian sentiment. Um, and up to a point, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but a wholly equal society uh, would be a society in which some of the most basic and most creative instincts of mankind was suppressed. Uh, and I would regard that uh, as unfortunate, to put it mildly. Uh, it would also mean, I fear, uh, that uh, we need actually a, a, a degree of inequality a degree of in unequal access to leisure uh, to enable us to advance as societies. Uh, if everybody uh, had had exactly the same opportunities uh, in the past, they would have been very limited opportunities. Um, this can only actually work by limiting people's opportunities. If you limit people's opportunities, you limit the inventiveness and creativeness of humanity, and you push us back a long way and certainly prevent us from advancing. I understand exactly what you're saying, but I think um, you would probably agree with me as well that it's important that the people who are calling for change don't sound hypocritical. Yes. I think that's probably what I'm driving at. Yes. And I mean, I think on the whole, I suspect that people don't resent the fortunes of people like Bill Gates, they're much more likely to resent uh, the fortunes of people who are much closer to their own economic position and therefore much more visible in the streets as opposed to just on television. Um, <clears throat> just on the public discourse, you've had a bit to say about the, uh, the common narrative surrounding COVID mm. in recent times. Um, I think it's fair to say that the mainstream media would either ignore alternative interpretations of data or policy responses, or they turn around and attack people who put a different proposition. Yes. So in my country, all the emphasis from particularly the left of centre of media was on the need 
to confront the dangers of this and go for powerful lockdowns. Mm. Very little discussion around the impact on young people, um, the economic impact uh, and indeed the mental health impact, let alone the medical implications of the yeah. lockdowns and their value. It has been a debate characterised by a, a very high degree of fanaticism. Uh, my de definition of a fanatic is that somebody who's only got room for one idea in his head at a time. And uh, the main problem, there were many problems, but the main one about lockdowns and about the advocates of lockdowns is a refusal uh, to examine uh, the collateral consequences. Those consequences fall partly under the heading of health policy itself. Um, the lockdowns have been disastrous in areas other uh, than uh, COVID. They have had a very unfortunate effect in increasing the death toll from undiagnosed or untreated cancers, uh, from dementia, which in the UK is the, has for many years been the biggest single killer. Uh, it has uh, reduced the exposure of particularly young people uh, to um, uh, uh, to pathogens and to uh, health problems uh, for which they have traditionally acquired in the course of their daily life a high degree of immunity. At the moment, in many countries, including this one, we have an outbreak of, uh, of uh, uh, unexpected outbreak of hepatitis illness in children. Um, one theory, a plausible theory, uh, is that, which has been adopted recently by the head of our health service, is that this has been the result uh, of children being locked in their homes and not having acquired a degree of basic immunity. If you interfere with a mechanism which has been basic to human experience for as long as human beings exist, you must expect a large number of unexpected side effects. And that's the unexpected ones. There are expected ones too. We are, as human beings, social animals. Everything that we do, everything that we create, uh, is done by virtue of our interaction with each other. To criminalize social interaction between human beings is, as it seems to me, a profoundly wicked thing to do. The people who do this are not profoundly wicked people, but it's a profoundly wicked thing uh, that they are doing. Uh, it's, there is a debate about how effective it is even in suppressing COVID. Uh, it is absolutely clear that it is disastrous in other health fields like mental health, cancer, heart disease, and so on. And that is before one comes uh, to think of the collateral consequences outside the domain of public health, particularly the economic ones. No society in history ever made itself healthier by making itself poorer. Uh, but that is what the collective wisdom uh, of uh, the uh, world, both despotisms and democracies, uh, has imposed upon us in the last two years. It is, I think, uh, a collective folly uh, induced by fear, some of which was spontaneous, but some of which uh, was attributable uh, to the actions of governments. In this country, the government refused to make use of the most significant fact about COVID, which is that it is a, a disease which attacks people indiscriminately but causes um, serious illness only in certain categories. It had to justify this by presenting wholly abnormal uh, instances of young people without underlying health issues who died of COVID as if they were the norm when in fact they were exceptionally rare. Uh, the, the broadcast media felt duty-bound to follow the government line about this. I think the first requirement in any major health crisis is a requirement for a balanced uh, opinion expressed in reasonable and calm and informative terms by public authorities. That is something which we did not have in this country. 
and judging by media reports, you had even less of it in Australia. Uh, yes, I think the key to understanding Australia is that like America, we're a federation. So it was dreadful in parts and not so bad in others. Some states were terrible in what they did uh, and, and others were relatively, relatively enlightened. But the horror stories have been... The horror stories are mostly concentrated <coughs> in Victoria. That um, is correct. Yeah. yeah, but not only Victoria. No, no. But I mean, the worst examples, uh, I mean, you did not, uh, the police did some pretty odd things, certainly at the outset in this country, but they didn't rugby tackle um, young yeah. women in the streets in front, of their uh, in front of their children for not wearing masks. Yeah, I agree. Now, you've said something there that I think is very important. You've called for calm, reasoned, balanced debate, taking into account all of the factors. A lot of this emotionalism around it that was, if you like, turbocharged by modelling, which mm. uh, most of which turned out to be wildly inaccurate. Yes. And I think there's a problem here, I have to be honest, with climate as well, because some of the people that I really respect in the scientific field, as you've done, uh, you're not a scientist, I know, but have pointed to the soundness of the science on climate change, but to the low confidence we can have in the modelling about the impacts Again, it comes back to this question uh, of the role of calm and measured debate. Given that, on the one hand, the urgency, as you see it, of climate change action, uh, I think I'm right in saying that you've said that you think climate change, or you suspect that climate change, will be the greatest challenge to democracy in the coming years. I think you're probably right, but I'd just be interested in a neat summation from you on why you see it as the greatest challenge to democracy, given that it's a problem that goes well beyond the democratic countries, which are around, say, 40 loosely out of the 190, 200 countries that we recognise. Because democracy depends on lines of responsibility, which are essentially national. But the only solutions that are likely to emerge to the climate change issue are international. Uh, they are therefore likely to be imposed by governments uh, and may well be rejected by dem democratic electorates because they will involve tightening of belt and that is not a popular policy to sell. Uh, in that remarkable lecture that you gave, the 2021 Roger Scruton lecture, uh, I think in memory of that remarkable man's yes. life, you made the, the point that democracies usually die from within rather than, if you like, be taken over by external forces. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, people like uh, Frank Ferruti are making the point that many of the attacks on our history seem to be designed to encourage our young people that they're inheriting a culture that's nightmarish and not worth defending. Given you know, that we, we probably do need to understand our past properly as a platform for taking ourselves forward, you've seen uh, this attempt uh, at uh, relaunching uh, history in this country called History Reclaimed, uh, and it stands against, quote, the abuse of history for political purposes aimed squarely at demoralising Western countries. As a historian, do you think there has been an attempt to deploy history to undermine people's confidence in, in our culture, and our values, in our society? I don't think that's the purpose of it, uh, among those who pull statues down or, uh, or demand that history be uh, taught uh, in a different way. Uh, I think it may well be the effect. Um, essentially, this arises from a, a frustration, uh, particularly of young people, at the inability of uh, their inability in a democracy uh, to have a decisive influence for their own views. And that is why they pull down statues in order to publicly express the intensity of their own views. Now, I happen to think that the views of any group of individuals um, uh, simply exhibiting uh, the intensity of one's own views is a singularly pointless and sometimes very destructive activity. Um, demonstrating the intensity of your views may well be 
a useful process if you are uh, dealing with an issue of current sensitivity where policy decisions have to be made. The same is true uh, if you are demonstrating your views about some future state of affairs. Climate change may be a good example of that. But demonstrating the intensity of your views about the past, which by definition it's too late to do anything about, does absolutely nothing uh, to uh, redeem humanity from any identifiable problem. It is simply a form of exhibitionism uh, which has no valuable impact on anyone or anything. In, the, in that same lecture last year, you addressed an approach to reforming our contemporary democracy that's becoming in vogue in some quarters, namely direct democracy, quote unquote, whereby citizens' assemblies or citizens' juries are used to make law. This direct democracy sits in contrast to representative democracy. Uh, I'm just wondering how you might describe them and what your concerns might be about such an approach. I mean, it sounds appealing. It no doubt reflects frustration with the way things work now. I have to say I'm not convinced they could be made to work, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. This is a very old dilemma. Uh, Aristotle's uh, criticism of democracy was that it uh, created a political class and he considered that all political classes were ultimately self-interested and corrupt. And that is an instinct which I think was wrong in his day, is wrong in ours, but is nevertheless accepted by a very large number of people. Advocates of direct democracy, citizens, assemblies and the like, are essentially trying to create something which feels like a democracy but doesn't have a political class. Uh, I think that this is an illusion. We have absolutely no way of knowing how representative uh, the uh, citizens' juries or citizens' assemblies will be. All we can really know about them is that they are not professional politicians. We need a professional political class uh, to debate issues. We need it, first of all, because they are likely to debate it with a higher degree of knowledge and experience. Uh, we also need it because a professional political class, in order to survive, has to, in a democracy certainly, has to at least try to appeal uh, to the widest spectrum of opinion in order to get elected. And that is a powerful engine of compromise. It's the way in which irreconcilable interests and opinions among the population can come a little closer uh, to being reconciled. So uh, I am a strong believer in representative democracy. I think the truth is that we cannot have liberty or democracy without politics, and we cannot have politics without politicians. I can't help thinking that these mechanisms would simply result in a new political class, which might very well be more dismissive of minority rights than what we have now. It might, but it will. The, the advantage of it from the point of view of its advocates are that it will change. The citizens' assemblies of today will not be the citizens' of assemblies of a month's time. So you have a system not unlike the system which Aristotle advocated, under which uh, office holders would be chosen by lot and hold office uh, without prospect of renewal for relatively short periods. That's the object of this exercise, and it seems to me that as a route for disastrous incompetence in government, it would be difficult to devise anything more effective. Well, you've been very generous with your time. To bring this home, can I ask you, if I were to put it to you that I think Britain's heritage has been remarkable and has done a very great deal, despite the downsides and negativities that we are keen to play up and talk about today, in reality, in spreading freedom and building the institutions that have freed many people, you know, over the last couple of centuries in particular, do you think Britain might now, having 
been through a period of quite deep questioning, uh, still going through it uh, as to what it believes and where it ought to go, can be a leading light in helping us find our way to a more robust and durable uh, democracy in the future, given the challenges we face? We are politically and economically relatively less powerful by a, a long chalk than we were 100 or 200 years ago. So our capacity for achieving that is diminished. Um, I think that the most that we can hope for uh, is to be uh, that to make our past a beacon for uh, our own future. Uh, I very much doubt whether it would be regarded as a beacon for anyone else's. This is partly because Western societies are relatively uniform among themselves. The big difference is between the basically democratic West and uh, more authoritarian models uh, associated with either so-called managed democracy, which means no democracy at all, i.e. despotism achieved by manipulation, which is the position of Russia, uh, or overt dictatorships uh, like China, uh, which can for a long time buy public support with economic success, but as the United States is now discovering economic success is never a permanent state of affairs. Thank you very much indeed, Lord Sumption, for your time and for your insights. Uh, I found them invaluable, and I've no doubt those who join in will feel the same way. Perhaps. I hope so. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.